Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have a chat to you today. Where am I talking to you? I'm up here in sunny Brisbane. Where are you? I've actually overseas at the moment, been visiting my children who go to school overseas. So uh, I can see me in about two weeks. Oh, fantastic. So whereabouts in the world are you? In Hong Kong. Okay. And so schooling there for any particular reason? My kids were, my kids were all born in Hong Kong and spent the first few years of their lives in Hong Kong and then moved back to Sydney when they were sort of two to three years old. And then when they became teenagers, I moved them all to boarding school in Hong Kong to reconnect with their kind of heritage here. My wife and I lived in Hong Kong since the mid-90s. And then we moved them back to Sydney, as, as I said, when they were little, and to give them the sort of the Aussie childhood experience and, you know, camping and surf club and nippers and motorbikes and beaches and all the outdoor things of Australia has to offer. And then we moved them back to school here when they were teenagers. And then from here... They actually then moved on to the US where they've all gone to school over there, currently at university over there. But you're in Hong Kong with them now? No, they're in the US. I've just got here from the US. They're oh, got it, got it. Right, okay, fantastic. Maybe that bit's all too confusing. <laughs> oh, no, that's uh, it's the world has changed so much, hasn't it? I mean, in, in particular, post-COVID, uh, you know, the sort of geographical boundaries that people felt constrained by, you know, they're a thing of the past really now, aren't they? I guess so. I mean, I always definitely prefer a work style which is more face-to-face with people. You know, I think it's so much of the workspace is really about building trust, relationships and the the casual interactions that you get from being in an office yeah. with people. Um, and I think particularly with both new people joining an organisation, you can. it's very hard to get the vibe and culture of an organisation without those face-to-face kind of cues that you get. Yeah. And also I'd say for sort of younger people in their career, it's, it's also very hard to understand the dynamics of a workplace unless you are, you know, around people who have got a bit more experience and building those relationships and role modelling and so on. So I'm definitely a big favour of those face-to-face relationships, but also, you know, fantastic to have the opportunity to be able to work remotely when needed as well. Absolutely. And, you know, that I think it's going to be a dilemma that people and businesses are struggling with for some time. How do you maintain culture with a workforce that is largely working from home? And whilst I think a lot of younger people enjoy the flexibility, the 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 crucial element of being a new, young, you know, a business person or executive or whatever you want to call us, is you want that mentoring. It's very hard to get, you know, that learning by osmosis if you're not sitting in the same room. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how all this kind of folds or unfolds over the, the next few years. But, Andrew, tell us a little bit about what your current professional responsibilities are. Well, I'm the Executive Director of the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation, which is an organisation that provides scholarships for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people to go to some of the best boarding schools around Australia. Um, And then as part of that program, we also then support those students once they finish year 12 
and go on to university and the workplaces. So we help them with career pathways and mentoring and all sorts of things like that. It's an organization I set up with my wife about 15 years ago. And prior to that, actually, we, had, we, we basically were living in Hong Kong for a long time, like over 10, 11 years or something. And then, and I was a banker at the time in Hong Kong, but moved back to Australia in 2003 just to start volunteering to provide, basically doing fundraising to establish a scholarship program at one school in Sydney. And so we did that from our dining room at home in Sydney for about five years. And then at the end of that five years, we had all these other schools around the country coming to us saying, you oh, we'd love to be able to do this as well. And, you know, particularly a lot of girls schools coming to us and saying that, you know, it's great you've been able to do this for that one school in Sydney, but little old girls schools like us, no one gives money to girls schools. It's always the dads who gives the money to the schools. And, and, you know, we don't know how to do this and we don't have the resources and the skills and anyone to help us. So basically we, we started sort of um, evolving that program from that one school in Sydney into now what's a national organisation. In fact, now the largest scholarship program in Australia. And yeah, so we now work with about 30, 30 to 35 schools all around Australia providing scholarships and career support for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. And and what was the original motivation to focus specifically on the Indigenous community? Was there some prior work history that where you, you know, had some engagement there or, or what was that all about? Yeah, it was a confluence of a whole lot of things. So essentially, I had grown up in Glebe in inner city Sydney. And today it's a very trendy university student town with cafes and everything but back then it was kind of housing commission and glebe murderer and not so glamorous and and you know my mom's father had died when i was very young mum was a single mum never remarried and she was working in hospitality restaurants bars things like that and so she was working late nights and weekends and i grew up with a lot of freedom kind of after myself to a large degree and part of the downside of that approach was that as a teenager i started really disengaging from school in my sort of early teens and and sort of slightly you know going off the rails might be putting it a bit much, but certainly not interested in school and and not going to school very much and not very not getting very good grades or anything. And so my and, and back in those days I was sort of running around in a city Sydney with, you know, around Glebe, Surrey Hills, Redstone, Central, all of that. And, you know, running around with a lot of the kids who lived around those areas and including a lot of Aboriginal kids. And, you know, hanging out in pinball parlors and just kind of roaming around, you know, being sort of young boys. And so I certainly had an insight into the difference between my life and the lives of Aboriginal kids that I would sort of know back then. And and so that was part of it. I guess also, you know, I had a family that was very sort of socially minded and so grew up going to lots of rallies and marches and things and, you know, waving banners around and everything. So I was always kind of into social issues and very alive to those kinds of things. Um Anyway, so when when I started sort of, you know, getting booted out of schools and getting in trouble at schools and stuff, my mother and grandmother intervened and convinced St. Joseph's College in Sydney to take me in as a boarder there. And it was very much against my will. I was kind of quite rebellious when I first got there. Halfway through year nine, I'd been booted out of another school after the first term in year nine. And I really didn't want to be there. I felt like all my freedoms had been taken away and suddenly I had all these rules and everything that I had to follow. And I sort of went in and I was in fights every week. I was running away, constantly in detentions, you know, just constantly in trouble, terrible grades, really just rebelling against the whole thing. But then slowly over the next couple of years, I really sort of morphed into it. And just not from any conscious decision, but just being in an amazing environment with 
you know, lots of mates and sport and activities and good teachers and supervised homework every night and early to bed every night and three good meals a day, all of those kind of things that you get in a really great boarding school. And, and that environment just kind of suddenly I started stop rebelling and actually love being there. And I started mm. building self-confidence and, you know, playing in, in good sports teams and building lots of relationships and friendships. And suddenly you really feel this amazing sense of belonging and, and camaraderie and community and togetherness and so on, which is just extremely powerful, particularly when you haven't had that, I suppose. Um, and so, you know, that kind of environment just was a real turnaround point for me. I went in in year nine at the bottom of the class. I came out of year 12 at the top of my class in three different subjects and then went on to university, did a law degree, worked in some of the biggest international finance firms in Sydney, London and Hong Kong, and then moved into banking in Hong Kong, and which I did for 10 years. But during that time in 2002, when I was living in Hong Kong, uh, we had the Bali bombings where I was playing rugby in Hong Kong and a lot of my rugby teammates from Hong Kong were down in Bali and were killed in the Bali bombings. Wow. And so a few people in Hong Kong, well, a lot of people in Hong Kong got together to see what could be done to help those families. But a few of us got involved in setting up a, a foundation essentially to raise or a, a charitable trust to raise money for their families, their wives, their children, other Indonesian kids who'd lost their parents. I guess that experience was just a sort of an insight for me that after being 20 years doing business, law, finance, you know, working in all these big firms all over the world, there was something else that I could do with all those skills that I'd developed through those experiences. And that was kind of it. I never really gave that another thought, but sort of about a year later, I was down in Sydney and someone told me that the boarding school I went to had started enrolling Aboriginal kids. And I was just straight away captivated by it. I don't know what it was, but, you know, I had, I had my own educational journey through school coming from different backgrounds to a lot of the other kids that were there. I had my own experience as a youngster growing up in Glee with lots of Aboriginal kids. And I suppose living in London, I really connected with a lot of Australian history. I started reading lots of books about Australia and Australian politics and so on. And, you know, when you when you live overseas, it's interesting. When you grow up in Australia, you're always just kind of considered an Aussie and you don't you just take that for granted. But you go and live in London as a young Australian and all everyone ever talks about is cricket, convicts, koala bears, Rolf Harris, rugby, you know, it's always Australian jokes and convicts and and you start to actually start really feeling Australian in a different way that you ever have when, you, when you've always just lived in the country and, and not had any of those differences. So that sort of encouraged me to learn and read a lot more. And so, yeah, when I was back in Sydney and I heard that, that Joey's had started enrolling Aboriginal kids, I was just straight away captivated and went up and saw the school to ask about what they were doing and how it worked and why and so on. And I was just so inspired by it that eventually I came and had a meeting with their board and volunteered to move back to Sydney and set up a, or start doing some fundraising for them to help grow that program. Mm. So we basically raised about $7 million over a five-year period, all just voluntary. I was working as a full-time volunteer then with my wife from the dining room at home in Sydney. And, and that was so successful that all these other schools started approaching us to say, could you help us? And so essentially we took the concept of that program from one school in Sydney and took it national with a partnership with Kevin Rudd, who was the Prime Minister at the time. Basically, he gave us, and again, we were still just, this was, the organisation didn't even exist. We were still just volunteering from home, thinking about how we might set up this organisation and, you know, developing some ideas and so on. And he gave us $20 million to take it national with a, with a caveat that we, or, or a challenge that 
we had to then match that $20 million from the private sector. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we got to work and created AIF and it was really very much a collaboration between the Australian government and then the private sector and philanthropic foundations and so on. And we were kind of the intermediary to bring those two forces together and then to partner with all these amazing schools around Australia so that we could be um, able to fund scholarships for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids to go to all of those schools. That's the kind of short version. <laughs> right. What a fantastic, and so much to unpack there because, Andrew, it is a, it's a cause very close to my heart, particularly not so much from the education point of view, which is obviously a precursor to employment, but, you know, organisations who really want to spawn and bring in, you know, Indigenous future leaders and really support them to achieve their career potential. And, you know, through my work and talking to people in the sector and, you know, trying to make myself available to to assist, I tell you what, it's for the uninitiated, it is fraught with all kinds of considerations that you normally wouldn't want or normally wouldn't even think about from a business context. But before we sort of, you know, segue down that pathway. So describe the, the organisation now. So you, your wife still works in the organisation with you? Yep. So the two of us still work in the organisation. We have a total headcount of 35 approximately. Our main head office in Sydney, which is about 26 to 27 of that 35. And then we've got a smaller office in Brisbane with about six to seven people there. And uh, we've got a couple of people who are sort of who had worked for us in Sydney or Brisbane, but moved somewhere else and are still working remotely from from where they live now. So working from home, but also coming into the office occasionally. So basically two offices, the bulk of our students, we have about 360 students a year on our scholarships at the moment. The bulk of those are in New South Wales and Queensland. We also have schools that we partner with and students on scholarships in Western Australia, Victoria, South Australia as well. And yeah, so basically that's our headcount, our program, our locations, and we support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids from over 400 different communities throughout Australia. So we've got a massive geographical reach. And the really interesting thing about it, this model is we partner with schools and we basically provide the scholarships for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students to be able to go to those schools that their parents are choosing themselves. So people don't come and apply to us for a scholarship. They apply to the school. Right. So they apply to the school that they like and or they might go and see multiple schools. And then the, the, the mothers and the grandparents or the fathers, whatever, the family and the students will be visiting schools, looking at the different schools that they're interested in and then making that application themselves. So it's very much about a parent-led kind of program. You know, we, we've never in our whole history of the 20 years I've been in this space, not going around in communities or and you know, saying, hey, everyone should go to boarding school or anything like this. This is very much grassroots community-driven demand that comes to us where people are hearing about the work we do through the sort of grapevines and the networks throughout Aboriginal communities and approaching us in droves. So very much about family empowerment, family choice, family decision-making about the educational opportunities they want for their children. And then once the school offers them a place, we then basically provide the funding directly to the school to pay for that place. Right. So it, how are the parents becoming aware of the schools that they are interested in presenting their child to? Is, there, is that, are they educated through the primary school system or how, how does it even come up on their radar? So I think a few things. First of all, you know, the Aboriginal population in Australia is extremely well connected. So mm -hmm. you have, you know, in 20 different communities, lots of family connections 
all across the country. So a lot of it's, you know, it's, it's very, it's not unusual at all to have an Aboriginal person who knows, who's got family and cousins and friends and relatives and kinship relationships and so on in multiple communities around the country. That's very common. And so there's that word of mouth that sort of spreads. We've already had over a thousand kids who have been through our program since we started. So those kids come from 400 different communities themselves. Many of those communities are very small and all regional and rural and remote. And so the word of mouth spreads through their own experiences in those communities. And then thirdly, I suppose the schools, the boarding schools we work with all have, you know, being boarding schools for you know, well over 100 years, they all have sort of certain uh, demographic and geography areas where they've built relationships over time. So, you know, a school in Sydney might have really well-established relationships with the communities of like Burke and Dubbo and Moree and Walgett, for example. And then other schools might have really good relationships with communities in, you know, the Riverina and the south of the state and down the south coast or up the north coast. And so there's all these school networks as well. And many of these boarding schools visit those communities often to catch up with alumni, to meet with prospective families and parents. And so they've all got their relationships in these different communities. And so the word of mouth about these opportunities spreads very quickly. And yeah, it's just, it's kind of very much self-driven demand that we don't do any marketing for at all. And we don't need to, and we don't really want to, because we don't ever want to be seen to be trying to suggest that anyone should be going to boarding school. That's not our agenda at all. Our agenda is about opening the doors to people who have had those doors closed to them and who want to open those doors and banging on them themselves because, you know, it's about, as I said, it's about empowerment, it's about giving people choice and it's very much about the success that comes from these students going to school really relies very heavily on about four different factors but two of those factors are that the family and community or the family, parents, cousins, grandparents, whatever it is, need to be really supportive of this opportunity to, for their kids to go away from home and go to boarding school. It's not easy. No. You know, anyone who goes to boarding school is going to tell you that it was a hard transition. And every family who's had a child go off to boarding school, including me, is going to tell you that it's gut-wrenching emotionally for your children not to be living with you as well. So it's a very difficult thing. So you need families and parents who are really on board and enthusiastic about it. And, and similarly, you need students who are really supportive and enthusiastic about the opportunity as well. Mm. So the the idea that this this demand for application spreads organically in that way is really important for us, really a critical success factor. And you know, and something about our model that we really like, really like about our model, and as I say, really contributes to the success of that as well. Oh, that's excellent. Just as an aside, I, I went to a, a well-known Brisbane private school and I was a day student. And one of my biggest regrets is that I never was a boarder because, you know, I'm about to turn 55. And I look at my friends who went to that school who were boarders and just the kinship and the, the tightness of that community is just, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I think boarding for the right you know, person with the right sort of mental kid towards it would be wonderful. But I haven't been able to convince my kids to do that yet. <laughs> yeah. So well, I must I must say, it never crossed my mind until we decided that, well, actually, again, our kids kind of decided they wanted to go to school overseas. So again, it's them initiating. Sure. Yeah. That's Excellent. So you mentioned Joey's earlier, so let's just use him as an example. So there are some parents of an Indigenous child and they go to Joey's and they say, we would like our child to board here. I imagine that there is some, you know, there's some entrance qualifications that need to be met in order for the child to be accepted, correct? 
Yeah, so essentially we have four main criteria. So one is about enthusiasm of the parents and the, and the students. I mentioned those already. The second one is about financial support, financial need. And so we basically have a, an, a, an arrangement whereby the parents have to contribute to the scholarships as well. It's not just us paying 100%. So having that um, level of financial need so that basically the parents contribute and that we pay what they can't afford based on the means-tested scale. And then the fourth one is really about the school assessment that that student is likely to succeed in completing year 12 at that school. And so that part of the assessment is done by the schools, but it's a really important part of the criteria. It's definitely not to dispel some of the myths that you kind of hear occasionally about selecting the best and brightest. Like we've had some of the most incredible success stories of 15-year-old kids who have gone to boarding school being illiterate and are now completed masters of teaching degrees and teaching kids in schools and so on and and lots of those sorts of experience so it's not about that and and we've we've done a lot of research on this and we've actually written a whole compendium of of what are the best practices for getting the results in these sorts of programs and basically you know it's really clear that the level of enthusiasm is a much greater indicator of success than the academic experience or aptitude of the student mm-hmm. because the academic capability of the student is driven very much about the educational opportunities that that child has had, right? And so if you've been in a school where you haven't had access to those opportunities or a community that we haven't had access to those opportunities, then of course that student is not going to be, you know, having the same report card as someone who's been at the best school in the world. And so what we see is that you can have really committed, enthusiastic, hardworking kids who haven't had those opportunities who do brilliantly in these environments. And likewise, you can have kids who have had all the opportunity in the world but aren't committed to working hard and and don't succeed. Now, they're two very big generalisations that are either in the spectrum, but it's definitely not about, you know, selecting the best and brightest in that way. And also it's not about sport and rugby and cricket or anything like that. It's really that enthusiasm. Now, when, when the schools are making their assessment about whether that student is likely to be able to succeed at the school, part of those considerations will be the school saying, given this student's profile and level of needs and support, do we have those things in place where we're able to give those that, that child the support that he or she needs in order to get through this? And sometimes the school will say we're, we're not equipped for that. And so, you know, it's really about making sure that the school is right for the family. So, you know, every school is different. They've all got different approaches, styles, cultures, focuses, emphases, you know, geographic sort of focuses and so on in their schools. And so they'll all make those assessments based on the individual needs of the student rather than sort of just like, well, what what grades have you got or or things like that. Mm. So it's very much the same as if you or I were to send our children to a boarding school or to any school. You just go through the enrolment process and, you know, there are some kids at those schools who are incredibly gifted and or maybe not gifted, but hardworking and have got exceptional academic results previously to that school, and there'll be others who don't. And so it's about having that diversity in the school and the school saying, we believe that we've got the right culture, the right environment and the right supports to be able to help the students succeed. And I imagine that part of not necessarily your explicit mandate, but you know the fact that you're working across a broad range of schools would be that if a particular school feels they're not best to accommodate that student, then there's an opportunity to refer them into a a school which would be better suited to their needs. 
Absolutely. Yeah, we do that a lot. And we also have situations where a family might move, say, from, you know, from one place in New South Wales to somewhere in Western Australia. And so right. we'll facilitate a move to a school in Perth, for example, as opposed to a school in Sydney or Brisbane. So yeah, there's a lot of that sort of crossover and a lot of sharing of information and knowledge as well. Mm-hmm. So that that research thing that I mentioned earlier, which is called our compendium of best practice, that was actually drawn from interviewing over 120 educators all around Australia in boarding schools with Aboriginal kids and asking them about what are the things that work and what are the things you've learned and how do you approach this issue or that issue? How do you create a welcoming environment for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids? How do you create an environment where they, you know, their their well-being is looked after culturally as well as all of their other emotional and academic and, and pastoral needs? So all these kind of all this kind of feedback from schools has all been captured and shared amongst those schools. And in fact, we've shared that whole document with over a thousand schools throughout Australia, back at least closer to two thousand now. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a lot of that sort of crossover between schools. Then, of course, schools. Even without us, schools have got all of their own networks as well, right? So if you're a boarding school in Perth, all of those schools in Perth have regular meetings with each other, whether or not they work with AIF or whether or not they have Indigenous students at those schools. Likewise, you've got, you know, the Catholic education system and the Anglican system, and they all got their own networks and groupings and collaboration. So there's a lot of cross-fertilisation in many, many ways. Fantastic. And so I'm thinking about your business. So really, you've got three key stakeholders. You've got the the demand being the student, the supply being the school, and the 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 cash being your your benefactors. So so as you're balancing, you know, those three um, key stakeholders. You know, what's the what's the challenge? You know, we're sitting here at the sort of early 2023, what's the pebble in your shoe? I think the challenge is, it's interesting, you know, a lot of philanthropists you go and see say, other than funding, what else are your challenges? And it's like, well, you know, that's like that's like saying you're selecting a team to play rugby for Australia and saying, other than being able to play rugby, what else are you good at? I mean, and I, I, I mean that jokingly, but, you know, we our model is such that we will partner with the school and say, how many places would you like to be able to provide for Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander kids in your school? Mm-hmm. And let's say they give us a number of 30, then we'll fund that number of 30. And let's say they come back to us in a couple of years, say so we'd like another 10, we'll increase to 40 as long as we got the funding to be able to do that. And so when we partner with the school, we can very quickly add 20, 30, 40 students to our scholarship program just by partnering with one school. Mm-hmm. And so the model we have is very scalable. All the work with the students around education delivery, pastoral care, you know, sport, well-being, health, relationships with parents and families and everything, that's all managed by the school because that's what they're good at. So, for example, when I went at Joey's, I didn't go in there saying, let me tell you how to run a school. I don't have any experience with that and got kicked out of more than I didn't. But, <laughs> but, but what I said was, you run, you know how to run a great school. This is what you've been doing for hundreds of years. I'd like to help be an enabler to open the doors for more kids to get the benefit of your experience rather than be be sort of telling you what to do. Mm. So how each school works with their students and families and stakeholders and communities is very much up to them. They're all different in how they do that. And so for us to be able to grow our program, which is the pebble in the shoe, we always, you know, we're, we're getting in some cases one place at a school will get 50 applicants, right, for one right. place. Right. So, you know, we, the, the, the thing that, the only thing that gives me keep awake at night or pebble in the shoe 
is how do we help more kids? How do we get, how do we address that demand? And so it all just does come back to funding essentially. I mean, of course, there's all the day-to-day challenges of, you know, recruiting and, you know, reporting and IT and all that sort of operational stuff. But essentially in terms of the mission, it's really the funding thing that's the the perpetual kind of grind that, you know, and, and it always will be. I mean, unless we suddenly had a billion dollars and we could say yes to every single applicant in the country, then, you know, we're always seeking to, to grow the program. And so that really is the key thing. It's about how do we enable these opportunities to be given to more families and, and students that want those opportunities. And I think also in the, in the 20 years we've been doing this now, you know, we've got annual retention and completion rates over 90%. And then for the kids who have finished school and then gone out into the careers, we have that what we call productive engagement rate after completing education, also over 90%. So we've got a very, very strong track record. And that itself is generating more and more demand because people are saying, well, you know, this family down the road had this opportunity and look at their kid now is, you know, 28 years old and he might be a diesel mechanic, but he's just bought a house and, you know, got a great job on a mine site and mm. whatever, you know, like things like that. Others are engineers and bankers and lawyers and so on, but, and others are shopkeepers and hairdressers and, and whatever. So, um, but it's this organic kind of demand that's coming from people seeing this success and who doesn't want the best opportunities for their children. Now that doesn't, as I said, that doesn't mean they're all going to go to boarding school or they all should. We definitely don't push that agenda in any way. But, you know, being able to address that demand is the thing that just drives us every day. It will certainly mm. drive me every day. And, you know, I think that's, you know, it's something that I guess when you're new and starting up, it's a lot of, as you, as the, as the space gets bigger, there's more people, there's more programs, there's more causes, there's more, there's always changing in attitudes or in the philanthropic world about, you know, the, the latest things that people are interested in supporting. So it doesn't get easier, it gets it gets harder. But, you know, we've got a great track record, great results, great partnerships. And so we just keep driving onto that. Mm. Well, I mean, 16 years in now, so you've certainly given it a good shake. When you're looking out to the future, Andrew, what are you excited about? Well, I'm excited about being able to grow it. I'm looking at, well, currently our big agenda, I suppose, in one word is sustainability. So that includes sustainability of funding, sustainability of operational excellence in the organization, succession planning, things like that, but really just striving to be best practice in everything we do. I think we're very good at it, but you know, no, no one's ever perfect and you never achieve perfect, but you know, we'd like to make sure that all of our systems and processes are great, sustainable, best practice, and that the organization can really hum. And that as we build that, all of those kind of structures and, and organizational internal stuff, that we're also focusing on growing the mission. And that doesn't mean just with new schools and new students, but also with new partners, new new funders, new stakeholders, and and all of our, you know, all of our sort of network is really just driving that forward. We're building relationships with government, particularly the federal government. We've been really, really well supported by, you know, every prime minister since 2008 and every minister for education and every minister for Indigenous Affairs. So, built, you know, keeping those relationships going is really important for us and yeah just kind of growing and addressing that demand that's really the big driver fantastic and what about for yourself i mean obviously you had a, a very corporate banking investment banking you know legal career and and have stepped into this space you know as i said 16 years ago but do you have any not regrets but you do do you, do you feel the calling back to you know a more corporate orientation or is that well and truly behind you now not in the slightest. No, not. I mean, I absolutely loved every minute of being a lawyer and I loved every minute of being a banker. So I did that for 20 years and I've actually now been doing this for 20 years because before 
AIF in 2008. That was the five years before that with the Joey's program. Right. So, yeah, 20 years this year, basically. But um, so, no, and so I loved every minute of my previous career, but this has just given me a whole different sense of purpose, direction, enthusiasm, you know, pride. And I, I, I don't, not doing any of this to leave a legacy for myself or anything like that, but I'm proud of what we've achieved as an organisation. And I don't mm. mean that. I mean every single person in the organisation in every single role. And and so, yeah, I think that's kind of probably the main thing. Mm. It's interesting this duration about legacy, isn't it? I mean, you say I'm not doing it to leave a legacy, but obviously, you know, it is a legacy type project, isn't it? So what's it, what's it, how do you distinguish between I want to do good, but I don't, you know, I'm not interested in leaving a legacy or not, not interested. Yeah, I'm it's just, not my yeah, priority. So, exactly. So no, it c- comes up a lot because sometimes in job interviews, people will say, oh, you know, I'm really interested in coming to work for you guys. I want to really make sure I leave a legacy. And, and it's just it's just a word, but it means different things to different people. Yeah. For me, I suppose the reason I don't use that word about me personally is because I don't believe that I'm doing this in order to have that outcome. That's not my driver. That's it, not my it, purpose at all. It, it, you're not coming at it from an egoic exactly. consideration. It's not about me. It's yeah. not about me in the slightest. Sure. And so I find when I use that word in just the frame of reference that I have for that word, it it kind of feels like, oh, it's all about me. And it's just, that's completely the opposite with this. This is for me all about the outcomes of students and trying to help change the country one student at a time and and build that momentum and everything mm. to create, you know, a better country, a better future for Australia, for all of us. But, you know, and other people who use that word legacy, they mean the same thing as well. Just yeah. It just so I don't I don't criticize people using that word. Just for me, that's the connotation of the word. Whereas for others, I get exactly what they're talking about. They're what they're essentially saying is, I want to do something that gives me purpose, is meaningful, makes a difference, you know, creates change for the future, something I can be proud of doing with my career. You know, I just interviewed someone today who, you know, is leaving a big corporate and, you know, is really enthusiastic about coming to work for us and and the way they described it was like, well, that's a pay, but this is a paycheck plus. You mm. know? And mm. I think that's that's the key. Mm. So, you know, we we kind of culturally also, I suppose, given the given the background I come from, which is from the corporate world, we've always described ourselves as a corporate nonprofit. In other words, we think and act like a corporate, we just do it for purpose rather than for profit. And so we try to have those disciplines in in what we do, in the way we work and so on. And yeah, so I think the way we have sort of tried to create the organisation through our DNA, really, is just about having an organisation that's got that best of both worlds, I suppose. Mm. On one mm. hand, of course, we want to pay people properly and pay people well. We want to attract the best people in the market, the same as BHP does, you know, mm-hmm. We're different. And we want those same quality people as as they want or as Qantas or Commonwealth Bank or anyone. And so, but, you know, we can, as well as that, for people who just feel like, well, they'd like to have a, change and do something different, then that can be quite appealing for them. Mm-hmm. Look, I think it's fantastic, Andrew, and certainly something I'd love to see, you know, how we can assist. You know, from my perspective, I talk to a lot of Indigenous business leaders and I also talk to a lot of corporates and there is a high desire to bring Indigenous people into the workforce and to support them to achieve their highest career potential. But the the, the gap is actually creating the motivation for the the indigenous person to want to pursue that career path and and um 
And so I, I see some amazing opportunity there. People are coming into your program, they're learning, and then they're going out into the workforce and being given the tools and the support to actually achieve their highest potential from a professional point of view. Industry is crying out for it. Mm. Um, there is no that. lack of desire, and yet there seems to be this hole that I've been trying to, to assist in creating education and support, and to date, it's largely been falling on deaf ears. Yeah, look, I think there's fundamentally a supply and demand imbalance pretty significantly. There was a senior Aboriginal leader talking at a conference recently. I wasn't there, but one of my colleagues was, and someone in the audience said, we're a company, how do we get more Indigenous employees? And the answer was, well... If every person in this room met the targets of Indigenous employment that they want, then, you know, we'd need 10 times more Aboriginal people and Torres Strait right. in the country that we have. And so, you know, her message was, you, you know, yes, Indigenous employment is one thing. You should definitely be all having those targets and, and goals and bring more diversity into your organisations. But there's also a lot of other ways you can be involved in Indigenous advancement and, and, the, and the broader issue. And secondly, I think the... Supply side is kind of where we come in. So, you know, there's we're, we're, we're educating kids at some of the best schools in the country. We're working with them from year 10, 11 and 12 with mentoring and case support, career management. And once they leave school or university, we then continue working with them and supporting them whenever they need support and assistance or changing jobs or whatever. So we have this real kind of cradle to grave kind of model of support and and hence why I'm really keen to grow the, grow the, grow the supply side in other words, meet the demand that we're seeing so that we can have much more, many more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people out there in all walks of life, in all different types of workplaces, making their mark, making their impact, creating change in, in, in Australia through, through the work they do. You know, everyone doesn't have to be a big public speaker on, on all the big platforms and everything to get all that kind of ability to make a difference. You can make a difference in so many different organisations and, and so many different ways. So really our agenda is about not just closing the gap in year 12 completion, which is our primary program outcome. In other words, our primary driver is year 12 completion for the students on our scholarships. Mm. But the reason we have the second measure, which is productive engagement when you finish, is because just finishing year 12 by itself doesn't mean anything. It's about what you do with that and what you do with your life having mm. been that opportunity. So mm. we really connect the careers and the education into, into our organisation through those two programs so that we can help address that demand. And as I said earlier, you know, we work with a lot of the biggest companies in Australia and we provide a lot of employees to those companies, a lot of interns, a lot of work experience opportunities, public speaking opportunities, mentoring opportunities, volunteering, all sorts of so we have this really multi-layered collaboration with our corporate partners and really about understanding what are your motivations as a corporate being involved in this space and how can we help you meet them. And if we can't, if it's, it's just, if they want something that's different to what we do, we won't have a partnership with them because like, oh, we need the money. We, you know, we, we, we don't want a partnership unless there is real strategic alignment between what they do and what we do. But definitely, you know, we're seeing great results in that. We just a couple of weeks ago had... A bunch of interns finished with HSBC. They were doing interns over their summer holidays from university. You know, we've got graduates working in BHP and Qantas and KPMG and Commonwealth Bank and lots of these sorts of big companies who we partner with and have partnered with for many, many years. So, yeah, it's really about building those pipelines to address some of those needs. Now, we're never going to be the one and only solution for their needs. You know, their, their targets and so on are involved in a lot more things like 
economic development and business support for Indigenous businesses and, and obviously other Indigenous recruitment as well. But I think we're a really, you know, a strong part of that portfolio. Mm, fantastic. Well, Andrew, I, I highly commend what you're doing. I think it sounds fantastic. I'd love to see how we can help. And I really appreciate your time today. And I'll leave you to your safe travels back to Australia. But in the meantime, have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks so much. Glad to be with you and appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.